George Kilpatrick, Inspiration for the Nation, celebrating people we feel good about. Well, we've got a sister who is here to help us be well. Her book comes out Tuesday, August 22nd. It's called Owning Our Struggles, A Path to Healing and Finding Community in a Broken World. We are so pleased to be joined by Mina B. She's a licensed mental health professional, and she has been featured in various media outlets. She owns her own consulting practice in mental health, and this book is about advocating for mental health inclusivity. I want to find out what she means by that, because there's a lot here. And uh, I'm excited to talk to Mina. This is a topic that I'm really really interested in because um, particularly in my audience and communities of color, it's a conversation that we're still struggling with, if you will. And so, uh, and let me start with that. Why are we still struggling with that conversation? You know, I think for a really long time, stigma has been prevailing in the black community. And I personally think that it is due to intergenerational trauma. You know, at the end of the day, if you want to go all the way back to when our ancestors were enslaved, yes, when slavery was ended and abolished, it's not as if we had resources Mm -hmm. that we could lean on to help us take care of our mental health and our well-being. You know, so now you have people who are free, but then you have all of these other laws and regulations and rules around what it means to be free as a Black person in America. And so when you have that type of historical trauma, medical racism, institutions, systemic racism, and even interpersonal racism plays a role in why as a community, we can be very protective over our well-being and therefore feel as if the concept of mental health is not for us, right? And I think it's really important for us to really own why that stigma prevails because it's often been put on black people well you're the reason why we are not progressing and i think that really just speaks to the intergenerational trauma that is still stored in our bodies behind why we still struggle around the concept of accepting mental health as a part of what it means to be human yeah no it's interesting because i think about your title owning our struggles and part of owning your struggles is well, how do I get comfortable with owning my struggle, right? Because I have to first acknowledge that I am struggling. And when you think about this idea of intergenerational trauma, you may not recognize that that's really what's going on and why you're reacting that way. The, the things that's still resonating and still uh, imp- impacting your DNA. So first you have to be comfortable acknowledging or admitting, I think that you are struggling. How do you get there? You know, what you're saying is really, really good. And I think that also plays a role in why mental health issues are consistently prevalent in the Black community, but we have never been able to identify them as mental health issues. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the things that we experience, we kind of see it as a form of tradition and culture. Mm -hmm. And so this concept of being the strong Black woman often is synonymous with having high functioning anxiety, Mm -hmm. right? And so one of the things that we have to learn to do if we want to break cycles within our family, we have to do the work of owning and recognizing one, 
what am I doing differently compared to my family, right? How was I raised? What did I like? What did I not like? How have I progressed as an adult? What are certain things from my childhood that I feel like didn't make me feel safe, right? Because safety plays a huge role in mental health healing. And so one of the things we often have to do as people to own our struggles is to do self-reflection and self-awareness work mm -hmm. and say, what are the cycles that I need to break? So if I know growing up in my home, um, for example, being spank spanked, being beat with objects in a belt did not make me feel good. It did not make me feel safe. Why would I use those same tactics on my child? Right. We have to be able to be reflective in our decision making and recognize the reason why intergenerational trauma continues to progress in families is because someone didn't make the choice to change their behavior and owning our struggles focuses on being able to step into that change. All right, so you don't you don't lit the powder keg now when you said around using corporal punishment or spanking mm -hmm. or hitting with a belt on an object, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and that leads me into something you write about in the book, which I want to get into, but I want to first tackle the the question and that and you talk about you you describe it as emotionally immature parenting. I want to know what you mean by that, but uh, before we get to that this notion of, of spanking, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna just say it, black folks swear that that's what kept them out of trouble. Mm -hmm. And that the fact that we're not doing that today is why some of these kids are running around. To that you say. Mm-hmm. George, you know, it's so interesting because in my line of work, whether it be when I was practicing as a therapist or even just in my interpersonal relationships. I kid you not, every single time someone has said to me, I was spanked as a kid, I was beat as a kid, I experienced X as a kid and I turned out fine. I'm like, oh, really? You turned out fine? So you clearly are not self-aware <laughs> because you lack communication skills. You don't know how to regulate your emotions. You have poor distress tolerance skills. You exhibit a lot of emotionally immature behaviors, but you perceive yourself as turning out fine because you have a good job, you own a home, you own a business, and you fall in line with the concepts of the American dream or what is perceived as a perfect, tedious life, right? And I think when we think of our well-being, a lot of us think that because I experienced certain things in my childhood and I turned out okay, I often find that there are a lot of blind spots in their lives that they have not been able to tap into to help them recognize you have a lot of healing to do. And so I think it's really important for people to be identifying what their metrics of success is, because often we're not thinking about our mental health when we think of success. Again, we're thinking about the outside things. How do I look in society, right? So people can look on the outside and see the things that I own, the way I present myself, but how am I as an actual person? Do I know how to engage in healthy relationships? Let me actually look at my relational patterns, <laughs> right? Let me pay attention to the partners that I pick. Why is it that I'm always picking people who exhibit red flags and in six months or five years into the relationship, I'm shocked by behaviors they were showing me on day one. 
right? And so that shows me that there's a lot of unresolved things that could be stemming from your childhood that you're not paying attention to because you have this concept, well, that turned out fine. And we really have to measure what fine actually means outside of our accolades. And so the parents will want to know, do you have kids? That's what they're going to ask you. And to that you say, do you, are you a parent? I, let me, let me say that one. Yes. So the parents are absolutely going to ask that. There are certain parents who will. The answer is no. And then what I say to often to parents, when you go to drop your child off at school, do you ask their teacher if they have children? When you take your child to the doctor who is diagnosing your kid, doing blood work, doing all the things necessary to help engage with your child, do you ask the doctor if they have children? When you need to take your child to a specialist because they're exhibiting behaviors where maybe they're displaying signs of ADHD or autism, do you ask the specialist if they have children? One of the things that we have to learn to identify is recognizing that giving birth does not necessarily make you an expert on parenting. When you want to engage in the work of parenting, you have a responsibility to do the work of understanding what it means to raise a child. There are parents who actually do not know that when a child is born, what it takes to develop secure attachment. My child needs secure attachment so that they can grow up having healthy self-esteem. They can grow up having healthy relationships. They can have high levels of confidence. And when they don't have healthy and secure attachment, they end up having disorganized or fearful, fearful attachment because of my parenting style with them. So either there's a lack of safety, maybe my child experienced abandonment, all of these different areas. Now, as that child ages, take them the age through the stage of zero to five. Do parents often know that that is the time when your child's brain is developing rapidly? which means if they experience acute, chronic, or complex trauma, to break those down, acute trauma is one single incident where complex and chronic trauma is when a child is exposed to multiple forms of traumatic experiences over a long period of time. If they experience trauma between the ages of zero and five, that now impacts brain development, mm -hmm. right? And now we have children who are in schools, maybe we perceive them as throwing tantrums. We mm -hmm. perceive them as engaging in certain types of behaviors that are difficult by not realizing this child is exhibiting a trauma response. So my role as a therapist, as a mental health professional, and even as a early Head Start consulting, because I've worked with children ages zero to five, which is why I talk a lot about childhood trauma. The goal is to never discredit a parent, right? That is not what this work is about, because you are going to be the first line of protection for that child. Sure. The goal here is to be someone who is willing to learn and unlearn so that your child can grow up feeling safe, feeling nurtured, and feeling cared for and having the tools that they need to thrive in society. And the same way in at work or in other areas of our life, if you can't take direction, often we, we always know that does not lead to success. And so I think one of the things that we have to do is, is manage the feelings of shame and guilt that is attached to parenting so that you can open your heart to really learning what you need to do to help tend to your children. Chapter four is titled The Struggle for Unconditional Love, Healing or Terminating the Parent-Child Relationship. Okay, now, mm -hmm. Mina, come on now, Mina, what you're talking about. And, and, and in that context, 
you write about emotionally immature parenting. What does that mean? So to touch on that really quickly, emotionally immature parenting is when clearly a parental figure displays emotional immature behaviors. And that might be due to their own trauma. Again, when a person experiences trauma, especially at a young age, that actually stunts their development. Mm -hmm. So think of adults in your own life who they're in their 30s, they're in their 40s and their 50s. And sometimes you look at them and you're like, yo, you're acting like a teenager right now. What is wrong with you? Well, that's what happens when you experience trauma. And so emotionally immature parenting can manifest, number one, when a parent, again, uses particular tactics like speeding, spanking, beatings, all those things. And the reason why they do it is because often they don't have the skills to help their children regulate. They don't have the skills to problem solve. They don't have the skills to engage in conflict resolution. The only skill maybe through intergenerational trauma they've been taught is the only way to fix the problem that I perceive as problematic is to hit, Mm -hmm. is to spank. We don't have conversations. We don't talk about feelings. We don't go there, we just spank. And, and, and then and, we say, and if you cry, I'm gonna spank you more for crying. And 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 we don't want to hear the. So this this is the other challenge because all of us grew up not challenging our parents. These kids challenge you, right? And so now you have a challenge because mm-hmm. you're not used to that. You never talked back to your yeah. parents. You were taught that, right? A child's exactly. place was a child's place, and now you have. So now you have situations where you're negotiating and your grandparents are like, what are you negotiating for? That's not what we did. But you're, but I'm hearing you say that that's what it requires. Is, is that what I'm hearing you say? Absolutely. And what other relationship in our lives do we tell people you have to submit to me? Now, let's not even talk about marriage. We're not going that. If, you, if people start going in that direction. That's not, you're not talking think about, about that. Right, right. Yeah. Think about in friendships. Think about when you go to work. Literally in any other relationship in our in our culture and in our society, we negotiate. We compromise. We listen to the needs of people if we want to have a safe, nurturing relationship. So why are children not owed that same level of nurture and respect? Now, here's the thing, because I hear you using the term challenge. Yes. Right? And I think what we, unfortunately, in the Black community have allowed ourselves to perceive as unhealthy is believing that if someone expresses their emotion or if someone has an opinion, let me say child, if a child expresses an opinion, shares their emotion or has a conflicting idea or opinion toward their parent, that is considered a challenge, right? And we see you expressing yourself as a sign of disrespect versus recognizing my child is actually trying to communicate with me. And there are going to be times as a parent, I'm not right. And also understanding my child is also trying to let me know I'm trying to build a safe relationship with you. Hence why I am bringing issues up into your attention. But how you choose to respond to those issues might make me have to discern, is my parent safe enough to talk to? Well, Mina, let me say this, Mina B., author of owning our, owning our struggles, a path to healing and finding community in a broken world. That's cute. 
But people might say, I ain't got time for all of that because I need you to stop doing what you're doing right now for a lot of reasons. It could be for safety. It could be because it, for, I'm thinking safety mostly. It could be situational. It could be for a lot of reasons. And so I ain't got time for all of that back and forth. I just need you to do it. See, that you say. Because <laughs> I don't always have time for all of that. I understand, you know, every situation is different, right? Sure. So mm -hmm. whenever we're having this, these conversations, one of the number one things I request people to do is use nuance. Yeah. Please engage in nuance thinking. Right. Because if something is happening for your child's safety, that is a completely different conversation versus your child came home with a poor grade and your response is to spank them versus having a conversation to know uh -huh. what is happening in school, that your grades are poor or I'm getting these phone calls versus you're literally about to do something so dangerous you could kill yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. And so nuanced thinking literally means to have a variety of thoughts and recognizing that no situation is equal. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think that's number one. And that's very important. Number two, though, we have to recognize that patience is a virtue and it's a part of the parenting skill. Mm -hmm. It is a part of parenting. And so there are going to be times where we are in conversation with a child who is kind of resistant sometimes to the things that we need or the things we're expressing to them. And if you're going to be short-tempered, emotionally immature parenting, if you are going to say, well, I, I, I don't got time to listen to you, what you're doing is shutting your child down in the midst of them showing you, I am trying to have a healthy conversation with you and I want to be supported by you, right? And so I think that, again, nuance is so important because there are going to be times, like I said, where certain situations require an immediate response where we can say we might have to talk about this later, where there are going to be certain situations where at some point you have to develop a relationship with your kid where you can sit down with them and say, we need to actually talk about these things. And I want to know what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what is happening for you, because also in the midst of all of that, we have to hold ourselves accountable. And we have to sometimes ask ourselves as adults, and the reason why I'm saying we too is because even though we're specifically talking about parenting, there are people raising children that are not biologically theirs, sure. right? And so when you are a caregiver of any format, it is important to also ask yourself, how are you modeling appropriate behavior? for the children that you're raising, right? And so I think a, a lot of those things are just so important when it comes to childhood development and what it means to build safe and healthy relationships between both parent and child. Some of your chapters include the struggle for wholeness, the struggle for healing, the struggle for safe spaces, the struggle for unconditional love, the struggle for intimacy, the struggle for fulfillment, and the struggle of being human. Did you struggle with this title of struggle? <laughs> I absolutely did not, as you can tell. <laughs> Clearly you did not. And I wondered about that because, again, it goes back to this idea and notion of owning our struggles. But I wanted to, there was, I know we're getting close on, on, for me anyway on time. And so I wanted, there was one, there was two or three things I wanted to talk about because the book is really about healing. And one of the pieces that you write about is cultivating wellness in a world full of in a world full 
of racism, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 you have a story that you write about uh, in Home Depot that impacts the way you live your life and and has stayed with you. I think you were ten years old uh, when this thing happened, and and it leads you to this conversation around the uh, you were presumed to be much older than ten years old. Uh, yeah. Something around uh, and this happens to black girls all the time, perceived to be much older than they are. This adultification of that clearly uh, based in um, uh, white supremacy, which you say, you know, this this idea of um, people say black being black is exhausting. You say, no, whoa, no, white supremacy is exhausting. So I wanted you to layer into that for a minute because I think that's also a part of recognizing that we are in an environment, right, that we're reacting to, and that's also part of what's what we're living with. Yeah, you know, so I remember right after George Floyd died, I saw that tweet circling around saying being Black is exhausting. And it really broke my heart because it made me think about all of the forms of adversity that we have to face as Black people in this country. And to know that there was someone who started to feel as if literally existing in our body was Mm -hmm. tiresome, was depressing, really hurt me. Um, And more so just put me in a state of like, man, like my brothers and sisters are suffering. Mm. And for me, when I wrote that chapter, the goal was really to help us tap into black joy Mm -hmm. and tap into our own ancestral healing, because being black, as I said, is not exhausting. In the book I share, white supremacy is exhausting. Police brutality is exhausting. White feminism is exhausting. Literally dealing with institutional and systemic oppression and marginalization, those things are exhausting. But when it comes to cultivating Black joy, that is a daily choice that I make. Mm -hmm. Because I woke up one day and I said, I refuse to do someone else's anti-racism work. I refuse. If you cannot be a safe person for me, we have no relationship. I refuse to dim my light and shrink myself and make myself feel as if I'm nothing, as if I'm worthless because the world decided, or at least certain people of the world decided that they did not wanna like me based off the color of my skin. And so I decided that I am going to boldly move through this world, being loud with who I am, And I wanted to share that because, you know, you talked earlier about how I also do corporate wellness work. And this conversation comes up a lot. Mm -hmm. Black women and black men saying to me, Mina, how do I make space in the corporate world? How do I deal with imposter syndrome? Mm -hmm. How do I um, feel comfortable enough to assert myself so that I'm not labeled the angry black woman? I'm not labeled the aggressive black man. And how do I become fearless in the pursuit of trying to be happy? And one of the things I often tell people is our goal is not to aim to be fearless. Our goal is to say, I am going to do this thing despite feeling fear Mm -hmm. because fear is an emotion. And so the same way I can't extract happiness from my spirit or from my brain, I can't extract fear. And so one of the things that we have to do is to tap into that level of resiliency to say, you know what, this is scary. It is scary. Because we know the consequences that can come our way. But I've also made a choice that staying silent is even scarier. Mm -hmm. 
And so I've decided in my own line of work, and this, this is the work that I do when I am teaching others, right? Especially people who are BIPOC, teaching them how to really lean into that joy of being assertive and recognizing we are fighting against systems, but your joy is your choice. Mm-hmm. And so what are the what are the boundaries and safeguards that you need to put in place that you realize is disrupting your joy and well-being? Mina B is a licensed mental health professional. She's got all kinds of tips in her book, including ways to tap into that joy, different ways to journal, different ways to see yourself, and different ways to heal. Owning our struggles, a path to healing and finding community in a broken world on your I, I want to say on your newsstands. I want to say everywhere <laughs> books are available. Tuesday, August twenty second. Uh, be there, get it. And and I and I gotta say, uh, I'm really proud. And you are also bicultural. We should also uh, yeah. point that out, right? Uh, black and brown, if if that's the right term to use. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, black and Latin. What's what's the term you use? You tell me. I can call myself Afro-Hispanic, so Afro-Latina. I laugh Afro-Latina. I wanted you to say it because I know in the <laughs> book it says one thing and people say other things. So I wanted you to do that. So I appreciate that. Appreciate you, Mina. We have so much more to talk about um, in the book. I wanted you to. I wanted you to tell me how you got to owning your own struggles. Uh, give me one minute on that, or thirty seconds on that. <laughs> Um, It came from me doing my own work in therapy. I was fortunate enough to be able to study um, social work while I was in grad school. Mm -hmm. That was the same year I made the choice to start therapy. And the reason why is because I too struggled with mental health issues when I was a child. I struggled with depression and anxiety. When I was a teenager, um, I became extremely suicidal and started cutting as a way to cope. Something Mm -hmm. that a lot of people don't realize is prevalent in the Black community, but we Mm -hmm. don't talk about it. Mm. Um, and self-harm and suicide um, has risen within the Black community Absolutely. since 2020. More than yes. any other community. Yes. Exactly. So this is why we need to be having conversations in our households, safe conversations, right? Um, but I did not have the luxury of being able to have safe conversations in my home, which um, exasperated my mental health issues. Um, and then when I became an adult, I realized that my life was falling apart but I knew I wanted more for myself. And Mm -hmm. so I made that first step in breaking cycles in my home and making a choice that the trauma will end with me. And that's when I made the choice to become a therapist while simultaneously going to therapy. And that was my process at learning to own my struggles. Mina B, owning our struggles, finding a path to healing and finding community in a broken world. On sale Tuesday, August 22nd, everywhere books are so mina we gotta have you back we got more to do we got a lot more to do we We got a lot more to do (laughs) and i appreciate you coming on get the book folks uh this sister's got a lot to say and we need to hear what she says and thank you for finding your voice and helping us to find ours here on inspiration for the nation